Hey friends, once again, you're listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we're exploring practical insight for racial justice and social change. I'm your host, Andre Henry, singer, songwriter, and author. And for the past several years, I've been on a serious intellectual quest, as many of you know, to understand how do ordinary people work together to change the world through collective action. Um, some of you have been a part of that journey. Thank you very much. You've joined my email list, Hope and Hard Pills. Some of you are Patreon supporters. Shout out to all of you making this show possible. Um, if you want to be a part of, we call it being part of the team. Uh, our Patreon supporters. And if you want to be a part of the team, you can go to patreon.com slash Andre Henry and you can uh, help us continue to create media like this. Um, the music today is brought to you by me. And today we have a very special guest. Tarika Powell is with us. Um, Tarika is an activist. Uh, she is a uh, neurodivergent environmental policy wonk, a self-described and mental health advocate, and also part of the board of the Washington Therapy Fund. And so I was attracted to Tarika's voice from following her on Instagram and the things that she was saying about the movement. So I'm very glad to have her here. Tarika, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I always start with this question with guests because I always think it's interesting to hear how people describe their own work. So how would you describe what you do in the world right now? Well, I do a couple of things in the world. Um, Career-wise, uh, I'm an environmental policy professional. The last five years I spent in the Pacific Northwest uh, fighting against fossil fuel terminals and shutting down dozens of proposed terminals over there. Um, my specific expertise is in liquefied natural gas and petrochemicals. Very mm. nerdy fields. Um, but I also, it's a field that doesn't include a lot of conversation about environmental justice, which is one of mm -hmm. my passions, looking at how communities of color are impacted and low-income communities. Um, I grew up very poor in Arkansas, um, mm. and that's a very big part of my work. I also lived in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina hit. So I have a mm. very um, big interest in climate change, how climate change is causing there to be more severe weather events and how those are disparately, disproportionately impacting people of color and low-income people who can't afford to evacuate. And what, wow. does, what does that really look like? And so that's my academic and career passion. And mm -hmm. outside of that, I've um, been active in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, mm -hmm. For the same reasons, <laughs> um, uh, right. um, certainly I was uh, very active in 2020 uh, mm -hmm. on the ground in Seattle, uh, where we became a national, international news story after we took mm -hmm. over the area around um, a police precinct in Seattle mm -hmm. uh, for about a I month. Remember that? Yes. Yeah. So it was a, a very big news story, mostly misrepresented in the news. Um, but but sort of my role down there was I had experience speaking to the media. And so uh, I noticed that, you know, the media does what it does. And it would typically just go put the microphone in the face of somebody mm. who was like yelling or screaming or in crisis and trying to make the protest look bad. Oh, and wow. So I basically took on a role of being a media liaison for the protests. And whenever I would see media down there, I would just hop in front of the camera and, and kind of, to me, um, divert what they were trying to do, which was to make the protests look bad. Wow. So could you tell us a little bit what that was actually like 
you know, what what was going on there? Um, so what was going on there is during the protest last summer at the end of May, right after George Floyd was killed, we were um, the first protest in Seattle was in downtown Seattle. It wound up with a lot of storefront windows being broken, a police car being burned. We were harassed by the police from the beginning. Um, and so a lot of that activity was anger boiling up from um, police harassing us when we were standing there, quote unquote, peacefully protesting. And uh, we were tear gassed on that day. I was with a group of people who were just standing there. We were off from the main protest. We were just standing there collected. We were kind of talking about women in this movement. And it was almost like a prayer circle. And then out of nowhere, all of a sudden, the police shot a flashbang into that very small crowd of like 30, 30 women and uh, started tear gassing us. And wow. Um, so there was a protest that was trying to go past the police precinct in this particular pre- police precinct. It was on uh, Pine and 12th in Seattle. The police claimed that they had some information saying that the protest was a threat to the precinct and we were going to attack the precinct. They later were kind of forced by media questions to release that information. And it didn't say any such thing. It it didn't include any threats at all. But what they did was they blocked us off from marching down the street because it was going past the precinct and it became a barricade. It was a standoff for two weeks of protesters and we started protesting around the clock. There was a park adjacent to to the police barricade and we started camping out in the park overnight. So we were down there 24 hours a day, 24 hour standoff with the police for two weeks. And again, they kept tear gassing us, shooting flashbangs. People got shot with rubber bullets. Uh, One woman was shot in the chest, went into cardiac arrest and they were just absolutely brutal. Um, Seattle is seen as a really liberal place, but the police force has been under a consent decree for some years due to Mm -hmm. police brutality. And they really displayed that during that protest. And so the more people saw what was happening on TV, um, the more people were like, why is there even a barricade? All they are trying to do is just march down the street like you're you're creating this big event. And like I said, after two weeks, suddenly one day the police abandoned the police department. Um, I saw on, I was at home. I saw on the news that they were like moving their stuff out. You know, I would go down there and spend a couple (laughs) hours each day, but I wasn't camping out 24 hours. Right. I was at home. I saw them on TV, moving their stuff out of the police department, just hastily loading up vans. And then they left. And I went down there to see what, what was going on. And Mm -hmm. they had left like doors of the police precinct unlocked. And it was very suspicious. The whole thing was very suspicious. Yeah, and there was this feeling that they're kind of trying to set us up so that we will do what they say we were going to do so that they can Mm -hmm. then be retroactively justified in their behavior. Right, right. So what we decided to do that night, a couple of people decided to camp out and prevent the police department from being burned down. The reason being that it's um, that area, Capitol Hill, Seattle, is like densely populated. So if the mm-hmm. police department catches on fire, some adjacent buildings are going to and there's going to be a lot of harm to surrounding community. Right. And also, we just did not want them to have that victory of saying. Right, See, I exactly. told you so. So, yeah. so some people donated some sleeping bags and uh, camped out that night. And that was the beginning of what became known as CHAS, the Capitol Hill Autonomous mm-hmm. Zone. Yeah. And 
So we were down there for a month. Um, mm-hmm. the, the police force, the mayor's office, um, all the city departments were very active in putting a lot of misinformation into the media, a lot of misinformation into the protest to undermine mm-hmm. it. We kind of took the barricades as like then protection, right? Once we moved right. in there and we set up a whole bunch of stuff where we were giving out supplies to the community. Seattle has a very large homeless population. Um, mm. The pandemic had started and the police were raiding encampments, throwing away people's things. And so mm. since this was a police-free zone, then a lot of the homeless population of Seattle came into that area. Then a lot of people donated clothing, food, materials. And mm. so it was like a, a really big mutual aid thing. Wow. Um, it was also like these thousands of people who had been being brutalized by the police for two weeks. It was kind of a mental health haven. We mm-hmm. had people mm-hmm. coming down there teaching meditation classes, yoga classes. We were screening movies. Um Paris is Burning was the first one we screened. It was really this kind of like unique, positive space. But the police obviously could not let that remain that way. And so we were monitoring police scanners and they would do things like put out false rumors that the Proud Boys were coming and they were armed and they were coming to attack the protest. Right. Mm. And so then some local gun advocates came to protect us. Mm hmm with guns and so Mm -hmm. then the media got pictures of them standing at the barricades and and we're like look at this armed military zone that's set up in the middle of seattle (laughs) and that was the international news story and it had no relationship to the truth and so it's a really interesting experiment well in really learning how media works and how they create their own story yeah of course and how then it becomes self-fulfilling, because now once everyone is armed based on this lie the police told, then there was violence and there was mm. a couple of shootings and it went bad fast. Um, but there was a lot of institutional forces making sure it went bad fast. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, I think it's so important for people to hear, you know, stories like this, because, you know, I mean, I remember I think it was. Walter Scott, who was shot in the back in mm-hmm. 2015 by the police. Or actually, I mean, yes, he was shot in the back and they tried to frame him. But I think it's actually Keith Lamont Scott that I'm thinking of. So I remember when he was killed and we hadn't seen the video footage yet. I was seeing videos going up on Twitter from people who were there saying one thing and seeing the the official police report, which said another thing. And it was the first time that I really saw that in real time. So I just want to point this out for people who are listening, for for some people, to hear like, okay, here's someone on the ground saying like, this is what we saw, right? And comparing that to how different that appears in the media and seeing how the media can be like this institution that supports this white power structure. It's so interesting. Um, I want to ask you about some of the stuff that you were posting on Instagram. I think it might've been earlier this year or, or maybe late last year. But as you were reflecting on the 2020 um, or the movement or the uprisings of 2020, um, these really uh, spoke to me and to a lot of people around the internet. And so um, about just kind of the health of the movement itself, <laughs> you know, what's, mm-hmm. what's going on within the movement. Because I mean, honestly, like what you described about how the, how the Chapel Hill, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone came to be is really beautiful, you know, like, and the mutual aid part of that. 
like this podcast is not about denigrating movements at all. This is about encouraging us to participate in them and to strengthen them and all that. But we also do need to talk about some of the things that make sustaining our movements for justice difficult. And I feel like you did a, a very, you, you said some very poignant things. So could you talk about what you were processing, what you were saying? I mean, I know that many people listening may not have seen, seen those posts as well. So just what, what you were trying to put out there. Yeah. So while I was down there at the protests, um, I started organizing with other Black protesters in the space who were seeing this as an opportunity to do movement building in Seattle, where there's a very small Black population. Even as we were down there protesting, one of the elements that we were up against was sort of the the Black institution of older leaders um, from mm-hmm. different movements who very much disagreed with our methods and um, who had very close and strong relationships with um, the mayor and government entities and sort of came out um, as the voices of what is and isn't acceptable in the Black community in terms of protesting and trying to get liberation. And so we were trying to build power around these other voices. There were certainly lots of allies in the space who were looking to the question of how can I help, how can I support? And to be frank, there was a lot of money flowing around. Mm -hmm. And um, there were a lot of different groups that formed in that space. Um, Some were doing like marches on a daily basis. A couple of those. Um, I I, um, co-founded this group called Black Collective Voice, which Mm -hmm. really focused on what I was doing down there in the space, which is being a voice of the movement and... Um, we put on different event educationally and, and continuing the educational activity. So putting on educational events uh, where we were getting like large groups of people to engage with the writings of James Baldwin. And um, oh, wow. and we we were very active in um, building connections with the media again so that we could be our own voices. Um, those are some examples of the spaces that came out of that protest last year in 2020. And within a couple of months, it was obvious that there was um, gross financial mismanagement in all of those spaces. The things that people were saying they were collecting money for, the money was not going there. Meanwhile, people were taking vacations. Lifestyles changed dramatically. Um, Mm -hmm. It was very obvious and concerning. Then I came to have some concerns about finances in my own space you know, everyone has their role and their job that they're doing. And when you're in the middle of um, a a very intense nationwide protest, you're kind of hyper-focused on your thing. And um, a couple of people were like, oh, we'll, you know, we have this nonprofit. We know how to manage money. And some shady things started to um, show themselves very quickly. Mm -hmm. And um, I called that out in the space. And... um, in other spaces where there was this was happening, people called it out. It was typically Black women, Black queer people, which I'm a part of both of those communities. The people who were calling it out were ostracized. Um, there was all of this language of everybody in the movement last year was talking about transformative justice and restorative justice. And what became clear pretty quickly is that no one actually knows how to do any of those processes. Yeah, and, right. Um, 
And 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 as a result, no one actually believes in it. They're just kind of repeating language that they saw online, apparently. Yeah. And so you just saw these spaces fall apart one after another after another. I was very disillusioned by it. I, you know, maybe to some people it would sound naive, but it was just shocking to me that people would be in the middle of this very serious and important movement and really thinking of ways that they could steal money. Um, yes. And, and waste it when we, when, you know, we're trying to go about the very important work of um, building capital so that we can actually also build influence and um, yeah. do the things that we say we want to do for community. And so, right. you know, these funds are being donated to you for community. And so you're stealing right. from Black people. And, right. um, and I was infuriated by it. Um, and I, I spent quite a bit of time being uh, depressed about it after it all happened, um, partially because I spent a lot of energy into building this space. Um, yeah. And and then this happens. And and so you feel like you wasted this energy. Uh, you start to notice in, 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 in a lot of these instances, the role that colorism is playing, the mm-hmm. role that um, sexism is playing. <laughs> And, right. and you really start to wonder, are we any different from what we're fighting against? And yes. so that was just the question I was grappling with for a long time. And I started posting about it. Yeah. And I'm really moved uh, to hear you tell this story because, I mean, it does it does feel personal to me. And I'm sure that it feels personal to others who have really gotten involved in movement space and found, you know, that some of the very things that we are fighting against um, in mainstream culture are prevalent in the communities that we're organizing with, you know? Like, how do you look on those experiences now? Like, what lessons have you taken from that? Because obviously it doesn't sound like you said, okay, well, you know, the whole thing is full of shit. I may as well just become a conservative Republican now, (laughs) you know? (laughs) That did not happen. (laughs) I think the experience made me strengthen my politics. Mm -hmm. The experience made me be more clear in what I'm talking about. Um, It made me ask myself, how can I not contribute to this culture where everyone is throwing around language, but they're building so-called movements that are not rooted in the language that they're throwing around. Um, Mm. How can I make sure it made me start reading up on more things. It made me strengthen my knowledge and awareness. And it made me very cautious about who I interact with and who I will and will not be around. Because in 2020, it was this thing of, well, if you remember, I mean, you were there, there were protests all over the country in places that never protested, right? It was we had never seen anything like that in this country in a very long time. It, yes. And so it wasn't, a, it was a moment where you're not like, okay, well, who is that? Who is that? It was like, okay, we're all out here. We're down here. We're all being attacked by the police. So we're all right. on the same team. And yeah. in those situations, you let your guard down mm-hmm. um, a lot because those situations, you just kind of in the mentality of safety. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that it made me think about a lot is sort of my history with trauma and 
how sometimes it puts me, it has put me in a position of wanting to um, help people that I feel compassion for, even if I see red flags. And that is part of what happened last year. And so part of the outcome for me is to listen to myself more, um, to not look past red flags. It has made me a little bit more insular and less trusting. Um, I've always felt that if you can make it to 40 and still be a very trusting person, that that's a good thing, (laughs) which I won't say that it's not, but I will say that I have reevaluated that, that outlook. Um, and, uh, understood that I need to put more protections in place around myself, um, so that I don't wind up in a position where my labor is being used to amplify people who are not about Mm -hmm. what I'm about. Mm -hmm. But I feel like overall, in terms of when I post about that experience, about how it was harmful to me, a lot of people come into the comments and are really thankful for the posts. And a lot of people express, you know, I've been depressed for the last year. And this is speaking to the pain that I'm experiencing. And nobody is acknowledging the mental health harm that came out of the protest last year. Right, right. And it encourages me to talk about mental health more because that's always um, frequently been my entry way into this conversation. Um, mm-hmm. one in four people killed by police, um, has a mental illness in terms of yeah. the data that we know. We know there's also a lot of people out there who are undiagnosed and not receiving any treatment. So the numbers could be higher. Um, yeah. if you have an untreated mental illness, you're 16 times more likely to be killed by police wow. than the average person. And I have, I have noticed that that is a conversation that is fairly absent from the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if for some people that undermines what happens to people um, or that they wonder if it'll raise more questions if we start talking about that, because there is so much mental health stigma. Um, Mm -hmm. But the more time I've spent researching black women and policing, which is a topic I'm very interested in, the more I notice that there is a very high prevalence of um, police being called to these women's homes on a wellness check. Mm -hmm. Or there's a very strong correlation between black women killed by police and mental health. Yeah. And so this experience has also led me to um, focusing more on that and talking more about that, because to the extent that I have lost some faith in the Black Lives Matter movement, Mm -hmm. I have also been energized to focus on what matters the most to me. Yes who I think is not still not being heard. Mm-hmm. What I hear, um, there's so much in what you said, but one thing that stands out to me is I, mean, I saw people on the ground in LA, you know, that were clout chasers or I'm trying to think of a softer word <laughs> than what I'm thinking, you know, but, um, you know, people no, who were, were people. not... I'm who, sorry, who, yeah, lacked, but... who lacked integrity, you know, really lacked integrity. They did not... They did not hold to the values that they espoused in front of the crowds, you know. Not at all. And and I was personally hurt by some of those activists. And um, I was actually diagnosed with P- PTSD earlier this year related mm-hmm. to to trauma that I experienced from other activists in the movement. Mm-hmm. And there 
is kind of this culture I noticed because people would know, like people on the ground would know that this person or that person is, you know, in some cases dangerous, you know? Um, And there was this culture of, well, we don't call each other out, you Mm -hmm. know? And I mean, I understand not calling out people, but like you said, there were no processes of accountability or transformative justice that we could really appeal to because at the end of the day, it was like, we're saying this, we're saying this should happen to people that commit crimes, right? We're saying they shouldn't be defined by the worst thing they've ever done. And we shouldn't be locking people in cages and essentially canceling them, you know, from social life. But we weren't able embody or practice those values with each other in the movement. And so there were just a lot of people getting hurt. And so there's a part of me that just really appreciates, you know, you sharing so generously of your story and talking about that experience. And um, it makes so much sense to me uh, what you're saying about like your focus now around mental health and all of that. And so um, I know that that's a deep passion of yours. So, um, you know, is, do you, do you want to say more about that, um, about what your work is looking like now and the emphasis on mental health and black women? Sure. Well, thank you for sharing about um, your diagnosis Um, I know there's a lot of people who've reached out to me and also said that they've been diagnosed with PTSD after the protest last year. The combination of um, going up against the state, in some cases uh, being absolutely brutalized by the state, uh, feeling powerless, and then really feeling betrayed by um, the people who are supposed to be on your team um, Mm -hmm. has left a lot of harm. And I do worry that you know, in this culture where we 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 view restorative or transformative justice as just an invitation to not so call each other out or not hold each other accountable, I worry that that has led a lot of good and dedicated people to move away from the movement, and it yeah. has left a lot of people with lower integrity and a lot of people who are cloud chasers because those are the the most visible people are the ones that people are going to give the most money to. And so there's a mm-hmm. lot of people who came out of last year with money and resources to continue what they're mm-hmm. doing. It's very right. concerning to me. If a lot of the dedicated people are worn out and, and somewhere trying to recover, and a lot of the people who are left, not exclusively, not all of them, but a lot of the people who are left, at, um, at least in, I can say this for Seattle, are people whose money is ill-begotten gains, then... Mm then what's next for the movement? What do we need to be talking about to make the movement um, be what people believe it is? Yeah. To make it be a space that doesn't um, cause this type of harm to people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's the conversation we should be having um, in the movement. For me, the work that I'm doing, um, I'm focusing my work a lot more on uh, mental health environment and mental health impacts. Mm-hmm. I've been doing a lot of research on um, the lifelong uh, mental health impacts of having access to or lacking access to environmental resources. Mm-hmm. I was really spurred on by this study I read that was conducted in Denmark, and it was a nationwide study that showed that kids who grow up with green space, like tr- around trees and being able to get outdoors, are half as likely to develop a mental illness later in life than kids who do not. Wow. 
and you compare that to historical racism, like let's say in the U.S. with redlining, if you look mm-hmm. at um, the historically redlined neighborhoods, um, black neighborhoods, those are the neighborhoods that, with the least tree canopy. That's those are the places where the city invests the least amount of money in uh, planting wow. trees, putting parks, and you you really see how this can set whole communities up from an environmental perspective in addition to all the other ways that these communities are set up to fail by historical and current racism. Um, This is something Mm -hmm. I don't see a lot of people really connecting all the dots on. And um, I also, as somebody who also has PTSD, I was diagnosed after Katrina. Mm -hmm. And there's not a lot of studies been done on the impact of Katrina on people's mental health. I can speak anecdotally to it as somebody who lived there both before and after. And I can say that every year to this day, when August comes around, there is this thing that falls over the city. Um, Hmm. New Orleans lost a third of its black population to Katrina. And um, it absolutely gutted a lot of communities. There's been a few studies done that show that there's persistent PTSD um among people specifically among black populations um there's not been enough study of it done and so i'm Mm -hmm. really um trying to bring the mental health conversation more into the climate justice conversation yes um and and that has become the focus of my work it's also become a focus for me to um be a public advocate around mental health because Mm -hmm. i have um always been ashamed of having a mental having ptsd of mm. potentially being seen as incompetent because there's a lot of stigma around it. Um, yeah. of, I've always been afraid of people, you know, potentially being afraid of me or wondering, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm emotionally stable. And I will also add that of the people who spoke out against what was going on in the movement last year, uh, one common defense or deflection was to say, well, this person has some mental health issues going on, you know, they they got stressed out yeah. during the protest, they got burned out, and it was used to discredit people. Mm-hmm. And as um as someone who was open about it, it was certainly uh, attempted, people attempted to use it to discredit me. And so mm-hmm. I have really decided I'm going to own my own story, and I'm yeah. going to speak publicly and actively about having a mental health diagnosis, and maybe give other people um, permission to do so. So that's what I'm yeah. doing with my life these days. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I just really have appreciated this conversation, Tarika. You are an inspiration to me personally. I'm so glad that you were on the show and I'm so glad to share this conversation with other people. How can people follow your work and keep up with what you're doing? Well, I don't have a huge social presence. Um, right now, I'm on Instagram at Tarika Powell, T-A-R-I-K-A-P-O-W-E-L-L. And I'll be launching my website in the next couple of weeks. Um, so awesome. there'll be other opportunities to follow and support in other ways. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Also, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts helps us get into more ears and minds. You can find all the links in the show notes for today's guest, as well as Andre's newsletter, Patreon, and book. 
You can connect with Andre on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at TheAndreHenry. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. We'll see you next time.